We're delighted to have James Gallon come and speak, who's a valued member of our company, a great friend who I love dearly. And he's going to speak to us on our passage for today as part of the Kingdom Come series, but also his work, which he'll highlight, a very, very important uh, work indeed. So just love to pray for you, James, before you speak, and uh, may the Lord rest upon us and in you. Father, we thank you for James. We thank you for his heart for justice. We thank you for the strong faith he has, the integrity that he has, the passion that he has. Now fill him with your spirit as he articulates his heart, but also open our ears to hear you today. In Jesus' name we pray together as community. Amen. Morning, afternoon. I'm James and I lecture in law in DCU and I'd like to thank Rob for the opportunity to, to speak to you um, today. Most of my work uh, involves uh, human rights issues and since 2014 I've had the opportunity to work with families uh, and victims and survivors uh, of historical uh, church abuse. Um, our passage today speaks about the need to protect uh, the little ones that follow Jesus and it does so in really clear stark and explicit terms. But it also offers us an opportunity to reflect on what the need to protect little ones looks like in Ireland in 2018, and for us to consider some of the responsibility that our society bears for the way in which Christians have failed to protect the vulnerable in the past. Now, some of the content of my work can be um, distressing, so if you feel this might unduly affect you, I'd encourage you to reflect on whether you'd like to get a cup of coffee uh, or some fresh air. Um, before we do that, I think there's a, a slide for, for Rubicon. Uh, yes, Rubicon is an event that I'm very proud to be involved in organizing. Uh, and it take, it's taking place this year uh, on October uh, 20th, the Saturday. Um, and uh, we're really delighted and proud to have a list of speakers uh, and a theme that I think speaks to today's passage and to what I think is a really central issue in Ireland today. Um, we've invited Scott McKnight as our keynote speaker, uh, who will speak uh, on a Christian response uh, to the abuse of power. We've Jared McKenna, um, an activist and theologian uh, and an abuse survivor himself, and speaking about his experiences in Australia. But we have a number of um, women, because I think this year uh, was the year of Nimenaw, um, and uh, we really want to understand what it's like to be a woman in Irish society today uh, in an environment of ongoing sexual violence uh, and allegations and truth uh, discovery uh, around that. So we've Nolene Blackwell, a friend and colleague uh, who works in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, heading up that organisation, Ruth Garvey-Williams, whose uh, magazine Vox will shortly publish a survey of Christian attitudes and experiences regarding um, sexual uh, uh, harassment and uh, the role of women in churches. Uh, Ali McKeever um, of the YWCA, uh, who hosted a recent event on Church Too and Me Too. Um, and Feli Speaks, uh, a poet, uh, um, a performance artist who will uh, conclude our day. So we'd love you um, to be there. Uh, tickets are available at wearerubicon.com. Um, and we really think this is a really important national um, conversation. So today's passage builds on what Scott did last week uh, and reminds us that a key element of Jesus' ministry was to foster a new understanding of the kingdom of God, especially for his disciples and for his would-be leaders. 
And Scott laid out beautifully how Mark's gospel has a love and an ethic to it and encouraged us to consider how Jesus' account of the kingdom of heaven is one that turns society upside down. The children and servants were the least uh, in Roman society, and Jesus invited us uh, and the disciples to be great by being the least. But unfortunately, as is often the case with the disciples, they were kind of tone deaf to this call and focused on their own status. And it's that uh, dissonance that continues in our passage um, today. So our passage today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter uh, 9, verses 38 to 50. And it begins, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before me, before, excuse me, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Rob told me apparently this passage doesn't come up that often in the lectionary, and I think you might be able to understand uh, why. It's pretty uh, full on. This is one of the longest unbroken speeches that we see from Jesus in Mark's gospel, and there are his last words in Galilee. In the next sentence, Jesus will leave to go to Jerusalem, where his disciples will all stumble, but where he will die and be resurrected. And so our passage today and uh, this series in Mark 9 is set in a household in Capernaum. The audience, therefore, is restricted. It includes the 12, but extends to at least including one child who Jesus has beckoned onto him and others who were not of the 12. And in verse 38, John asks Jesus in the name of a group who expect to be followed uh, as those who invoke Jesus' name uh, in the process of exorcisms. And the structure of Jesus' speech is reasonably clear. In verses 39 to 41, Jesus includes and rewards outsiders who nevertheless act as insiders by acting in his name. Because Jesus is assuming people are taking signs. Israel as a whole is identifying and deciding whether his mission is from God or not. And John wants to restrict the work in Jesus' name to an official group of disciples but for Jesus, if someone is casting out demons, they are honoring him. And so the difference here is not just between being exclusive like John or inclusive like Jesus, but it concerns how profoundly or how seriously we're taking the idea of Jesus's mission. Is it a private and privileged operation or is it a cosmic event that's moving swiftly towards a showdown in Easter 
in the events of his trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, an event that has significance for all of us, not just the professional Jesus followers. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Next slide, please. Thank you. John's attitude is a symptom of a disease that afflicts the church to this day. How easy it is for any of us, especially professional clergy or theologians, to assume that the church belongs to us. How easy, too, for people who have always worshipped and prayed within one particular tradition or style to feel this is the proper way. Out there in the world, beyond even rudimentary theological education and training, there are millions of Christians whom Jesus may be referring to as the little ones who believe. If those who have training and education do anything that excludes such people, they are in deep trouble. Now, I was raised, and I still consider myself in part, um, to be a Catholic. But my wife, Sherry, likes to joke that uh, she is the one who introduced me to the real, the Anglican Jesus, when we started dating. And what attracted us as a couple to, to Holy Trinity a number of years ago was that this is a church that welcomes people of diverse backgrounds from different denominations and from none at all who come together to journey in a life of faith. And I really think this is a blessed thing. And yet Jesus' words today encourage us to consider again, how can we extend the branches of our community further? Who is not against us, but is for us, and yet is not here? How are we like John? Who have we caused to stumble by excluding them? Who does not feel welcome in our church? In verses 42 to 50, the chapter continues by assigning various torments to those insiders who fail to sacrifice themselves for the whole and specifically for little believers. Now, it's important to emphasize the phrase little believers in Mark works at both a literal level and a figurative level. There are those actual little children present with Jesus in Capernaum. But little believers is also understood as believers who depend upon their leaders such as John and the Twelve. And this broader understanding of little ones is also present in Matthew's account of the scene. And so verse 42 in chapter 9 serves as a very strong warning to would-be leaders and to Jesus' disciples to protect these little ones. Could I have the next slide, please? Uh, the phrase used for the millstone suggests it was an incredibly large stone which required a donkey uh, in order to move it to create uh, uh, the grain. And this would have been so heavy, as you could imagine, when you put it upon you, that it would have caused the body uh, to sink and prevent any possibility of floating when thrown into the sea, as Jesus suggests. And this was particularly problematic for a Jewish audience at the time, because it would have prevented them from accessing traditional Jewish rites of burial and being right with God on death. So it's very stark language from Jesus. People in his day would have been shocked and yet Jesus suggests that this fate, taking that stone around your neck and being thrown into the sea, is better. And so what we have to ask is, what is it better than? For the remainder of the passage then, Jesus continues to shock uh, his audience. He suggests it's better to dismember the offending parts of our bodies, our eyes, our hands, and our feet. And again, this was designed to shock and provoke 
the Torah had prohibited priests with any physical defect from serving in the temple. He was saying to would-be religious leaders, you should disqualify yourself rather than risk uh, causing pain uh, and suffering to little ones. And so these passages refer to precious parts of our body and our person, which nonetheless might cause us to stumble. And so as Christians, we're called not only to reject the things that are obviously or clearly, as we understand them, wrong or sinful, but we're also called to reject God-given things, good things, as our hands, our feet, and our eyes are, when they lead us down the wrong path or align us with dysfunction and evil in the world. As I hope will be evident in a moment, I really like my job. I really like my work, I really enjoy researching, I really enjoy drinking coffee and reading books, as it's been described. Uh, and God is uh, someone who blesses our work. It's one of our values in our church that work is a good thing. We were encouraged to work even in uh, the garden, naming the animals. And yet it's easy for our work and our jobs to become like slavery in ancient Egypt, adding brick to brick, day to day with no recognition of the goodness of life. And so I can risk neglecting my wife, my friends, my health and my family in pursuit of my, my job. What are the good things in your life that risk causing you to stumble? What are the good things that you might consider making an ultimate thing or placing too much importance on or put to poor use? Jesus' warning about our good things occurs in a context of proclaiming the kingdom of heaven throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus starts his uh, ministry by declaring the kingdom is near, and he tells the disciples again and again in Mark about the character of the kingdom of God. So whatever the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is, it's of foundational importance to what Jesus is trying to teach. And so the question for us today is, what does this warning to leaders tell us about Jesus' kingdom? Now, many Christians assume the kingdom of heaven means exclusively a place you go to when you die, if you've been saved. But Jesus seems to contradict this. He says the kingdom of heaven is within you, that is, it is here, it's present in the earth, and it is at hand, that is, it is close in time. And so we don't seem to die into it, we seem to perhaps awaken uh, into it today. The other approach to the kingdom of heaven is to equate it with an earthly utopia to say the world will turn into a place of peace, of equality, and of justice. And when Jesus' followers wanted to crown him the Messiah and have him lead them to take on the Roman Empire, Jesus tells them in John's gospel, my kingdom is not of this world. And so what then is it? In Luke, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within us. And so in reflecting on the passage today, I've been very struck by the work of Jim Marion, an author whose book, uh, Putting on the Mind of Christ, describes the kingdom of heaven as a metaphor for a state of consciousness. He says, the kingdom of heaven, as seen and preached by Jesus, is a non-dual consciousness, an awareness. It sees no separation between God and humans or between humans ourselves. To put on the mind of Christ is therefore to experience this awareness for ourselves. And when we do put on the mind of Christ, we, like Jesus, will see the kingdom of heaven all around us, here and now. We see ourselves and everyone else, no matter who they are, as divine. And we will be living in the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. 
It's a hard idea, perhaps, to get your head around, but what makes it very clear to me that it's understood as a state of being or a state of consciousness is that Jesus, his ministry and the stories he tells seem to reflect this. Jesus starts his public ministry with words from his father. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And if we reflect upon the story of the prodigal son and the father, the loving home of the father was always available to that son. It was always available to those who wandered. It was available to the Jesus who stayed on the true path, the way, as we sung. And it was available to those who grow bitter, the older brother, at the Father's unconditional mercy. And so the words given to that older brother at the end of the tale of the prodigal are very similar to the words given to Jesus. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And so it's from this consciousness, this state of being, that we are secure and identified and intimate with the Father, that Jesus fulfills his ministry, and from where we are invited to partner with God in sharing the good news and transforming the world. We are and always have been enough for God. And so the question for us to consider today is if this has been so and been so for 2,000 years, why do we not live in this kingdom of heaven? If we are interested in pursuing this state of being, why do we pray, thy kingdom come? Do we also pray, my kingdom go? In the next slide, please. What causes us to prevent God's kingdom coming into our way of viewing the world? Do we have our own kingdoms? And if we want, I think, to step into this reality further, if we want to live in God's kingdom of heaven, I think we need to be honest and let God tell our whole story. If we have a father whose love is unconditional, he knows our past, he knows our faults and failings, and he's embraced us anyway. And so in being honest, I think we need to recognize it is not merely individual or personal stumbling blocks that will stop us from inhabiting the kingdom of God. It's also our actions as communities and nations that put distance between how we are and the kingdom of heaven. And I think if we reflect honestly on our past, our shared and national past, we're offered the means to redeem it and to prevent wrongdoing in the future. And I think this honesty is also deeply biblical. If we read the Old Testament, we see Moses as both a leader and a deliverer of his people from slavery and as a murderer who loses his way. In the Gospel of Matthew, Peter is presented as the rock upon which Jesus will build his church and as a stumbling block to Jesus himself. And the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament calls Israel to account again and again, reminding Israel of its original call and covenant with God and their failures to live up to those promises in real and material terms. And so it's in this context of loving church deeply and being reminded of its original purposes that I want to talk about my work. So for, since 2014, I've worked on uh, organized uh, violence in the name of Christianity in Ireland and in uh, comparative perspective. 
I've worked with victims and survivors and families uh, looking for their loved ones, and I've worked with advocacy organizations. And from last year, I started working um, with government. And the challenge for us is that in Ireland, since independence, we saw certain groups in society as moral or social problems. And we placed them in institutions, not only for their care out of a Christian ethos of charity, but the reality seems to be we place them in institutions as well to avoid the, quote, contamination of the respectable middle classes, of perhaps of us. So it seems our good things, the desire to help the poor and the least among us, like the eye, the hand, and the foot, went astray in the Irish context. Could I have the next slide, please? There's a variety of forms of abuse in Ireland, and I think one of the difficulties is there's so much information to take in um, that it's rare to see the whole picture. The first thing that we investigated in Ireland were the industrial and reformatory schools. We set these up as places uh, to house children uh, who were in desperate need uh, because of poverty uh, and social breakdown. And so from 1936 to 1970, 170,000 children uh, were housed in 50 or so industrial schools. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, we investigated those schools in what's known as the Ryan Report, which revealed that physical and sexual abuse and neglect of children was endemic or widespread in these institutions. And over a 1,000 children and former pupils uh, alleged physical and sexual abuse. But abuse was not limited to institutions such as Letterfrack or Artane. If we go to the next slide, please. Abuse also occurred in the parishes uh, and the dioceses uh, of Ireland. And the priest uh, that is uh, and pictured there is Father Brendan Smith, uh, who abused children uh, in Dublin, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, in the United States and Canada, because each diocese and each parish moved him on with knowledge he was an abuser and he had the opportunity to abuse again. So we had abuse in the parishes of Dublin in my home church in Dunleary. In the church next to DCU where I work, abuse took place. And not only did it take place but it was covered up as priests refused uh, to deal with the issue as a legal matter, seeing it primarily as a spiritual matter. Uh, and believer, excuse me, victims were not believed when they sought uh, to bring uh, accountability. Now, in the last four months, I've tried to gather the data on how many allegations there have been of clerical abuse in parishes and how many convictions this has led to. And between 1975 and uh, 2014, there were 4,406 allegations of sexual abuse, which led to 95 criminal convictions, it's less than 1%. Now, convicting for sexual violence is difficult at the best of times, but historic sexual violence in the absence of corroboration and so on is especially difficult. Could I have the next slide, please? The abuse that took place in Ireland was not just against children, it was also gendered in nature. It involved specific harms against women and girls. We established Magdalene Laundries, from 1796, excuse me, 1795 until 1996, where the last Magdalen Laundry closed. And an inquiry in 2014 suggested there was at least 14,000 women and girls detained in these institutions since the foundation of the state. Now, the laundries were intended to be set up to house, quote-unquote, fallen women, those who were involved in prostitution, 
but also sought to enforce a strict sexual morality. Those alleged to be involved in extramarital sexual activity, those who were seen socially as being promiscuous and so on. And when in these laundries women uh, engaged in unpaid labor and were subject to physical abuse and particularly uh, humiliating spiritual abuse. If we read the, excuse me, the McAleese report, we hear testimony from survivors where they say, we were just called unspeakable things. We were, uh, girls as young as 13 and 14 were told, you're here because no one loves you. You're here because your family brought you here and are ashamed of you. You're here because God does not love you and everyone is going to forget you. And it breaks my heart. The people who professed to a life of faith and a life of service would think of saying uh, such things. The spiritual dimension to the abuse is always the one uh, that gets me the most. Can I have the next slide, please? And the last section of abuse that we are currently investigating are mother and baby homes. So in the foundation of the state, the idea of an unmarried mum caused a moral panic in Ireland that these were a drain on the state's resources, that these were going to create a social shame and condemnation. And a fledgling state recently independent from the UK was worried that it was being seen as not having its house in order. And so in 1922, we set up nine mother and baby homes uh, across the country. And from 1904 or so, uh, previously uh, maternity homes, uh, to 1996, 35,000 women and girls went through these homes. Uh, the purpose of the home was a woman would come in, uh, be pregnant, give birth to her child, the child would go uh, for adoption, and the woman would do uh, labor there to pay for her, uh, her stay. And it's alleged that these homes were sites of neglect of the children, they were sites of forced labor of women, that pharmaceutical companies visited to conduct vaccine trials without the women's consent, that uh, there was the illegal adoption of children, so adoption without uh, registration or papers and adoption without uh, the consent of the mum. The advocacy organizations that I work with suggest that there was at least 10,000 illegal adoptions in Ireland uh, in the 20th century, with 2,000 children being issued passports to travel um, to the United States. There's currently an investigation into mother and baby homes and it was set up as a result of investigative journalism and as the result of the actions of, of one woman, Miss um, Catherine Corliss. Uh, her work focused on the mother and baby home in Tume uh, in Galway. Could I have the next slide? Uh, this is a site in Tume in Galway where Catherine gathered the details of the death certificates for 796 children. And she, her question was, where are they? And the conclusion seems to be that they're on that field. In 2017, the government issued a statement saying they can conclude or acknowledge that there were, quote, significant quantities of human remains in an underground chamber of a septic tank in Tume. They've done some preliminary analysis of the children's remains, and it seems, seems that those who died were aged from 35 fetal weeks to two to three years, and that the bones tell us that they died from neglect. Um, and malnutrition. And it's in this cheery context uh, that I was contacted by government and was asked, do you have anything uh, that might be useful for the minister to know? 
So the next two days later, I sent her a 50-page memo saying, uh, this is what international best practice is in the area and what your commitments are legally um, as the state of Ireland. And so since then, I've been working with government uh, to advise on how better to engage with victim survivors who feel unheard and unacknowledged, uh, and how government can adopt uh, international best practice. And it's led to the establishment of a body known as a, a collaborative forum, a standing body between victims, survivors, and government officials in June this year. But there's a number of big decisions that government still has to make, and churches uh, who run these institutions still have to make too. Uh, will they provide compensation to victims? Will they enable access to uh, adoption records that are sealed at present? Will they issue an apology? And the biggest decision of all, I think, is will they remove the remains from this site? Will they seek to exhume and identify the children who were there? Because I've been working with a woman for the last three years who desperately wants to believe her brother has had a long and happy life adopted in America. But she's worried he's there. And she is brokenhearted and she's traumatized with the uncertainty and the lack of knowing. He has no death certificate. And, and so there are many people in this situation who desperately want to know how many children are there and, and to give them a decent, proper burial. So this is really heavy, right? And I know it's, 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 it's hard. Welcome to my day job. Um, but it's important, I think, for us to identify that while predominantly a, a Catholic problem, this is not exclusively a Catholic problem. It is predominantly so because of the nature of the country, but it has involved a variety of Christian uh, denominations and faiths. Could I have the next one, please? So the Bethany home is one of the mother and baby homes currently under investigation. It is very close to here. It is in uh, Orwell Road in Rathgar, and it was run by uh, uh, members uh, of the Church of Ireland. And the Church of Ireland has refused basically to comment or acknowledge uh, on the status of this home to date. Survivor groups would suggest that there are other Church of Ireland and, and Protestant-run uh, institutions or non-Catholic institutions that also warrant uh, investigation uh, or that are subject to, should be subject to um, redress. So Stewart's Hospital and others have been already in existing redress schemes. And in my work, I'm writing a really nice and cheery book at the moment looking at how Ireland compares to other countries in this area. Um, and if we look at Canada or Australia, we also see Anglican communities involved in the abuse of Aboriginal children in residential schools, uh, and so too in the US. But what's more troubling for me is that the same problem seems to be occurring today. Today we're hearing about stories of sexual abuse in modern-day evangelical communities. And if you want uh, more details, I encourage you to go on Twitter and use the, the hashtag church2 to hear testimonies from survivors coming forward in light of the Me Too movement. It is a depressing reality that violence, especially against women, seems to transcend time, denomination, and culture. And I think we're starting to see the depth and seriousness of our problem in the Me Too movement, in Ireland with the Belfast rape trial, and this week with the confirmation hearings in the United States of Brett Kavanaugh after the US Supreme Court. At a national level, this history of Christianity in Ireland is a involves a tragedy that is crying out for redemption. And the plight of victims of sexual abuse throughout the world remains one of the most pressing issues today. And so when Rob asked me to speak uh, on this topic, the question that really got to 
uh, me and that I've been wrestling with is what does our gospel have to say to victims and survivors? What does the kingdom of heaven mean for those who've suffered and those who support them? And unfortunately, there's been very little good news in, the church, in how the church has responded to date. It originally covered up the abuse. It's paid a minimum amount of money to victims and survivors. Uh, to date, the Catholic Church has paid 13% of the bill for industrial school victims' redress. You, the taxpayer, have paid the rest. It has paid nothing to Magdalen Laundry survivors and nothing to mother and baby home residents. It has fought and settled civil action for sexual abuse and continues to refuse to give families access to their adoption records so that they can learn the truth of their loved ones. The Church of Ireland has refused to acknowledge responsibility for the Bethany home. And in terms of modern-day abuse, some church leaders in the US who were accused of sexual assault received a standing ovation from their community as they resigned rather than criminal investigation. And patterns of justification are the same across the world. We see church communities saying, well, our country was poor back then. The past is different. Standards of morality and right and wrong were different. They say, well, abuse has occurred outside the church too. Most sexual abuse occurs in families, which is true. If they say the church was doing something good, providing for the most vulnerable and no one else would do it, and we were not paid for it. We see the blaming of victims. These little ones must have done something wrong. Maybe they were sexually active. Maybe they failed to report the abuse for these decades. Or maybe they just are not believable. And that's what we've said as Christians to date. But the Bible seems to commit us to a different approach. Scripture today seems to remind us that Jesus would have been unequivocal in calling out wrongdoing, in emphasizing it's better to name, to remove, and to hold to account those once good parts of ourselves that are causing others to stumble and to turn away from God. Jesus used the most explosive language he could think of with those that he loved dearly to emphasize how seriously we must take our responsibility to those in our care as Christians. And elsewhere, he reminds church leaders of an order of priority. We should not be first concerned with the perceived wrongdoing of others. In Matthew 7, he says, how can you say to your neighbor, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, I love this church very much. I love Christianity, I love the Catholic church, but there is a log in our eye. There is a log in the eyes of Christian churches. We continue to place stumbling blocks before one another. And I need to say this, and I don't know if you'll all like it, but I really think it's important. We have a problem, Christians have a problem with sex, we have a problem with women, and we have a problem with children. We were violent in our past because we thought ourselves separate from the love of God. We were afraid, and in our fear, we found somebody else to blame, someone else who was the problem, someone else we could change to ensure our own salvation. And churches continue to treat these problems in terms of respectability and in terms of awkwardness. We treat sex like an unspeakable and an unforgivable sin. We are inarticulate about sex, and society never stops talking about it, but has no truth or no meaning in what it's saying. And in the face of mounting evidence regarding sexual abuse, 
Our silence is no longer spiritual. It is not neutral. It is costing and hurting those who have suffered that we do not listen in solidarity, that we do not act in justice or preach a gospel and build a kingdom that affirms their goodness and their safety. We have a problem with women. The institutions in which the abuse occurred were founded and operated in a belief that a woman's most important asset was her purity. And we used law and institutions to shame and enforce a rigid account of sexual morality, all the while shrugging and saying, boys will be boys. And again, watch the testimony that occurred in Washington this week. The idea of women and girls being pure and respectable continues to be a dominant theme in Christian culture and remain, remains enforced by shame and exclusion. And I think our problem with children is this. If we do not transform our pain and our past, we will transmit it. We risk passing on not only the good and healthy parts of our church, but also the bad parts of our tradition in Ireland. I do not want our sons and daughters to grow up in a church that has no response to toxic masculinity, to rape culture, to Me Too, to the shaming of women and the failure to shape men. I want a church that can talk maturely and lovingly about sex and sexuality, that can honor and empower women as well as men. Can we be people who root our children in their fundamental identity as sons and daughters of God, who affirm their goodness and the goodness of their bodies and the goodness of their minds and their souls? Can we do for this generation what we were unable to do in the past. I'd like to invite Sherry and the band to come back up. Our passage today concluded with Jesus saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And today I want to acknowledge some of the things that has stopped church being salt and light in Ireland and that stops us being at peace with ourselves. I wanted us to name the pain that is in currency in our country. I wanted to lament it and to begin to seek the healing of all things. Could you go to two slides later? I was at a march when the Pope was here. It was the Stand for Truth March, organized by Colm O'Gorman and other survivors of abuse, and there was a elderly man who was handing out this placard and it just really speaks to me of what I think Jesus would do in response to what we've done in his name. He would protect the least among us, he would protect those little ones and he would not be polite and he would not be respectable with those who caused harm in his name. He would say enough. Jesus's anger was an appropriate response to injustice. And so today, it's important for us to remember that the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And so to conclude today, I would like to invite you into a moment of contemplation. I invite you to think of our church. I invite you to think of all the goodness and the health and the community that it brings. And if that's not your experience, 
I invite you to think of what's home for you. Where do you feel safe? Where do you feel loved? And I'd like to keep you to keep that thought in tension. I'd like you to think of those who have suffered unspeakable horrors from people who professed the name of Jesus. And I would like to invite you to consider joining me in lighting a candle. You might want to light a candle for one of those children in the ground and tomb. You might want to light a candle for the women who were shamed in institutions and who were forgotten. You might want to light a candle for those who were raped by men claiming to represent Jesus. You might want to light one in solidarity, in lament or in anger. But I'd also like to invite you to consider again the kingdom. What is stopping you today believing that you are enough right now? You might just want to light a candle to seek forgiveness, to give thanks, or to light a fire of hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son, for his love for each of us, and for showing us the way to your kingdom. I'm sorry, Lord, for all the ways we have put distance between ourselves and you. I'm so sorry and I lament for the hurt and the suffering and the shame that has been caused in your name. Jesus, let our community and our church be the practice of the better. May we know and may we guard against the risk of causing others to stumble. And may we love fiercely with open hearts, all those little believers who seek you now and forever. Amen. <laughs>